It's, it's very good. Whoa. It's very good to be back at Covenant College. Uh, this is a very precious place uh, to the Messner family. Uh, my children cried like babies when we left. And Lord willing, some of them in the years to come will make it back up onto the mountain. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, would you bless this meditation on a man of the scriptures and help us to learn and profit from his experience as we apply it to our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever worked with someone in the church or here at school and they let you down? I mean, they failed you in a big way. And as a result, to be honest, you don't really want them around anymore. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe there's someone sitting in this chapel right now who has let you down, who has failed you, and to be honest, you are done with them. Let me put it a little differently. Have you ever been that person for someone else? You know, someone was working with you, someone was in a relationship with you, and you let them down. You failed them. Maybe there's someone in this chapel right now, and you know they're done with you. And to be honest, given what you've done, you don't really blame them. The question for this morning is, what happens when you look at someone in the church, or you look at yourself in the mirror, and you just want to say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. That's what I want us to consider this morning. And to do that, I want us to consider the biography of John Mark, as we find it sketched out in various New Testament texts. You see, I find Mark's spiritual biography to be one of the more compelling and more encouraging stories in the Scripture. And I think Mark's story has a great deal to say to us as we seek to process our own disappointments with others and with ourselves. Now Mark's life, as we find it in the New Testament, I think can be broken into three uh, distinct categories. First, we have kind of the, the initial portrait that is given to us of Mark uh, from various scriptures. It's, it's not a strong portrait, but it's certainly there's enough data there that I think we can sketch a picture. Then we have Mark's initial and very brief foray into ministry. And finally, we have Mark's maturation and his uniquely useful service. Let's consider each in turn. First, we have the, the initial portrait of Mark and his background that's given to us from some, just a couple scripture passages. The initial portrait we get of Mark in the scripture is one, shall we say, of significant privilege. For starters, it seems that Mark grew up in a very wealthy and prominent home. Uh, we get this picture in Acts 12, beginning in verse 12 going forward. There we learn that Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, was the owner of a large home. This home in Acts 12 is the site of a prayer gathering where many people are gathered together and praying. And we also learn that uh, this home has a door of the gateway and the family had a servant girl who would come and answer the door. Now, most homes in this time period were quite modest, and so this is a striking bit of detail. 
uh, that this home could hold a gathering of many people, that it had a separate door of the gateway and a servant girl who was assigned to answer that door, they all indicate that Mark's family had significant wealth. There's another picture that comes to us in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52, where we read that there was a young man who had followed Jesus and the other disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, wearing nothing but a linen cloth around his body. Now, the text does not identify this as Mark, beyond a shadow of a doubt, but most scholars certainly lean in the direction that this young man was, in fact, Mark. And if it was Mark, then this is another confirmation of his wealth, because in those days, a linen garment was a fine and very expensive garment to be wearing. So from these little details, we get this picture of Mark as a well-to-do young man. But more than just being wealthy... The New Testament also gives us a a sense that he was surrounded by the life of the church and well-connected to the great leaders of the day. We see this because if we return to Acts 12, we we learn that there was not only a a prayer gathering being held in his mother's home, but that uh, this meeting in particular was an emergency prayer meeting for Peter, who had been arrested and jailed and sentenced to death. In Acts 12, we read that when Peter was miraculously freed from prison as a result of their prayers by the hand of God, he immediately went to Mary's home. Now, of course, Peter did not know there was a prayer meeting going on for his welfare. No, it seems the case that Peter, being freed from prison, immediately went to the gathering place of the New Testament Christians, which, of course, was Mary's home. So, so what we, it seems here that, that Mary's home was, the, if not the central gathering place for the Jerusalem church, it was certainly a central gathering place for the Jerusalem church. So this would seem to indicate that Mark was raised in the midst of the New Testament church, and he would have been well connected to its most prominent leaders. Uh, we have other indications in the scripture of his connections. Colossians 4.10 says that he's a cousin of Barnabas. Noted scholar Pastor R. Kent Hughes writes this, Mark had been a remarkably advantaged young man. His mother's home had been one of the centers of the Jerusalem church, and John Mark had known all the apostles since boyhood. So what we have in this initial portrait, even from these few details, is here is a young man of significant privilege. He had the material privilege of wealth, He had the communal privilege of being well-connected to the leaders of the church, and then he had the spiritual privilege of being surrounded by the apostolic ministry of word and prayer. This is a young man from whom we might expect great things. This then brings us to our second consideration for the morning, which is Mark's initial and very brief foray into the ministry. At the end of Acts 11, we read that the church in Antioch had learned that there was a great famine in Jerusalem. So the church determined to send relief to the Christians in Jerusalem, and they sent that relief at the hand of Paul and Barnabas. At the end of chapter 12, Paul and Barnabas return from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they decide to bring with them John Mark. When when Paul and Barnabas then uh, decide that when they are sent out on their missionary journey in the next chapter, they decide, we read in Acts 13.5, that they brought John, John Mark, to assist them. However, we read only eight verses later, very early in their missionary journey, that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
Now, there's no indication, at least not in Acts 13, what Mark's departure is all about. Luke is very circumspect with his words. He simply says that Mark left while the rest went on. However, when we get to the end of Acts 15, we see that after Paul and Barnabas had returned from their first missionary journey, they were looking to set out on another missionary journey. And now Mark's previous departure becomes a very significant issue. For Barnabas wants to take Mark along with them on their next journey. But Paul strongly disagrees. Though we do not know the exact reason why Mark left. What is clear is that his previous departure, in Paul's eyes, is something close to a betrayal. It is a great disappointment, to say the least. What is clear is that Mark left them and he did not go on with the work. It seems clear that in Paul's eyes, Mark failed the team. He let them down. Paul does not feel like he can trust Mark and bring him along in the future. In essence, he feels like they are better off without Mark, that Mark's presence on the team would be a case of subtraction by addition. Paul feels very strongly about this. He will not take mark a lot and if you think paul's being a little hard on the young man it's not hard to understand paul's perspective if you consider the details of their previous missionary journey then you know the work was hard work it was intense work it was dangerous work they spent hours on foot going from place to place they spent hours crammed on ships going across the Mediterranean Sea. They battled against sorcerers and faced great spiritual darkness. They had been publicly reviled, persecuted, and driven out of cities. Attempts were made on their lives, and at times they had to flee for their safety. At the end of their journey, Paul was attacked, stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. Paul was not leading tourism trips across the Mediterranean. No, he had no time for babysitting. He could either count on you because lives were at stake or he could not. And as far as Mark was concerned, Paul could not count on him. He would not risk his own life and other people's lives by having them depend on young men who weren't ready. Now Barnabas, on the other hand, wants to give Mark another chance. Perhaps his family ties to Mark gave him an emotional connection that Paul did not have. But in any case, this is clear. Mark had failed Paul. He had deeply disappointed him and let him down. And he would not allow him to come on the next journey. Mark, Paul, in fact, feels so strongly about this that he would rather lose Barnabas than gain Mark. It's a very powerful Pauline indictment on Mark's ministry fitness. Now, it's a hard scene because Paul and Mark do, I mean, Paul and Barnabas do split. They do divide. And the issue is Mark. It's a difficult parting. But thankfully, it's not the end of the story. This then brings us to the final consideration for the morning, which is Mark's maturation and his uniquely useful service to the Apostle Paul and the church. Now, we don't know what, but much about what Mark and Barnabas did once they left Paul and sailed away to Cyprus, which was Barnabas' hometown. This happens at the end of Acts 15, 
and they do not, Mark and Barnabas do not appear again in the rest of Acts. They kind of drop off the radar screen of the New Testament. However, Mark reappears at the end of Paul's letters to the Colossians and Philemon. Now, these letters were written about a decade after Paul's parting with Barnabas and Mark. And here Paul makes this rather shocking revelation regarding his ministry team. He lists three Jewish men who are working alongside him and who uh, give greetings to the church in Colossae. Among them are Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Paul says, if he comes to you, welcome him. And he adds, these three men are the only Jews among his fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. In Philemon 1.24, Paul again singles out Mark as one of his fellow workers who passes on greetings. Now this is quite remarkable, is it not? We don't know exactly how, and we don't know exactly when, but we do know that somewhere in this 10-year period, Mark and Paul were reconciled. And, and, and Mark went from being a young man who was of no use to Paul in his missionary work to being a fellow worker who had become a source of comfort to Paul in the ministry. Mark's ministry, at, at some level, had been fruitful now in Paul's life. It was beneficial to Paul's own soul. And this is remarkable. And if the story ended there, we would say, wow, what a happy story, right? But there's more. The work that had begun and had obviously changed Paul and Mark's relationship, it continued to grow and flourish. We know this because at the end of Paul's life, as he lies imprisoned in a Roman dungeon, Paul writes the letter of 2 Timothy, his final recorded letter. Now, this was written some four to eight years after uh, the, letters to Colossian, uh, the letters to Colossae and to Philemon. Now, at the end of this letter, Paul lies almost completely alone. Many have abandoned him. Luke alone, he says, is with him. And in his hour of greatest need, he makes this bold and clear request to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, 9 and following, he says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon and get Mark. And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. In, in essence, Paul here is declaring, this is the heart cry of a desperate man. And he says, I don't have much time left. The times are hard. My departure is approaching. I have to make the best use of every moment I have left. So now I need the guys who are the most reliable, the most dependable, and the most useful. So Luke is here. That's good. Timothy, you get here. My spiritual son, I need you. And get Mark. Get Mark. Because he's very useful to me in the ministry. See, now Mark is not just a fellow worker. He's not just a comfort to Paul among many others. No, but he has now become singularly useful. Uniquely useful to Paul in the ministry. This is a stunning development. We're talking about the man who was no use, no functional good. This is the young man that the ministry team was better off without, and he was willing to split the team up just to make sure he didn't come along. And now he begs Timothy to bring Mark to his side because he's very useful in the ministry. 
I need him here in my hour of greatest need. Just as a little aside, I want to say if there were if there was one Bible study I would want to attend in the history of the world, it would be Jesus on the road to Emmaus, breaking down the whole Old Testament for his followers. If there's the second Bible study I would like to attend, it was the one in this Roman cell, if Mark and Timothy got there. Because you'd have Paul, Luke, Mark, and Timothy, and the parchments breaking down the word together. That would be cool, right? Is it not amazing what God can do? And of course, we, we know that Mark not only became useful to Paul, he became indispensable to the entire church. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5.13, written about the same time as 2 Timothy, he calls Mark his son, his spiritual son in the faith. And of course, there is a very strong tradition, which I have no reason to discount, which is that Mark and Peter collaborated together that for Mark to write his gospel about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a stunning development, brothers and sisters. This young man who quit on Paul, who was deemed a ministry liability, who was not permitted, permitted to participate in subsequent missionary journeys, he has now become one of the great comforts to Paul, who is now uniquely useful to him and necessary for his ministry. He became a spiritual son to Peter and the author, I believe, of one of the four biblical gospels. I don't know about you, but I find that remarkable. I find it encouraging and instructive as I encounter disappointment and failures in others and in myself. Now, now of course, Mark's life does not give us a how-to manual for resolving conflict and pursuing reconciliation. Now, in Mark's case, what the New Testament gives us is the fruit of that process, not the process itself. But I think there is a massive takeaway here. As we encounter hurt and disappointment and failure and letdown, we can think of John Mark and we can say, you know what? God's not done with any of us. No, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has done a work to save us from the power and the penalty of sin. Through the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. We're ransomed from death unto life eternal. But, but know this, when God saves a person, he not only secures our eternal salvation, but he begins a good work in us so that he begins to mold us and make us and break us down and build us back up. He does a work that will grow us and produce in us spiritual depth and maturity in ever-increasing ways. God's engaged in a sanctifying and a purifying work in all of his people. He begins that in every one of us, and he will see it through to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So you can know right now, he is not done with any of his children. You may feel like you are done with someone. You may even feel at times like you are done with yourself. But know this, God's not done with any of us. He is at work, even now, even in the failures, even in the disappointments. He is at work to conform us more and more into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is at work leading us into good works which he prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. He is at work in you and in the person in this building that you cannot stand. 
He is at work. And I want you to remember that. When you are frustrated beyond belief with a schoolmate, Someday when you are frustrated beyond belief with your spouse. When you are done with your teenage child. When you just are so frustrated and disappointed in a fellow believer in Christ. You just can't believe they would fail you in that way. Now, there are times, of course, where there may need to be strong discipline in a relationship in a way that might even seem to threaten the relationship for a time. I think that's part of what Paul's engaging in here. But know this, we always have, by God's grace, we have to keep our hearts open to each other. We dare not give up on each other. We dare not write each other off. But we continue to pray and work and pursue one another. Even if it's so strained that you can only pursue through prayer, you pursue, you remain open. You remain hopeful about one another. Not because you have so much confidence in them, but because you know God is still at work. He's still at work in me. You know how many times in life I've said, I'm such a screw-up. I'm such a failure. I failed people as a pastor. I failed my wife. I failed my children. But praise God, God's not done. He's still at work. And this is what the life of John Mark reminds us of. It declares to us, hey, this is what the good news of Jesus looks like. This is what it accomplishes. Yes, it accomplishes eternal salvation. Praise be to God. But it also accomplishes very real spiritual growth and maturity and change. So that I can say, hey, I can look back and say, I'm a mess, but I'm not what I was. And by God's grace, I, I really pray that in another 10 years, I won't be the mess I am now. I'll be a different kind of mess, but, but a mess who's on the way, who's increasingly useful and increasingly fruitful. Brothers and sisters, I just want to close our time together with this. Hold fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just for the hope of eternal life. By all means, hold on to the gospel for the hope of eternal life. But hold on to the gospel... And believe in it for its transforming power in the lives of God's children. And in faith then, let's hold out the hope of the gospel and that transforming power to one another. And look in the mirror and hold out that hope of transformation to yourself. Because God's not done with any of us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you for the marvelous work of your gospel. And Lord, we, we, we often find it easier to believe that you could save a wretched sinner and take us to heaven someday than we believe that you could take a wretched sinner and cause him to grow in this life or her. But Lord, give us uh, faith in the gospel, not just the power of justification that will enable us to stand and be welcomed into your presence on that day. But Lord, give us faith in the sanctifying power of the gospel that is at work in us, changing us, molding us, sanctifying us on this day. Help us to believe that gospel for ourselves. 
and help us to believe in that power of the gospel for one another. That we would be a people who don't give up on each other. We remain hopeful because we know with a smile on our face, you're not done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.